Please listen as I read the word of God from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete the work among you, this, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God. In case you didn't make it there, you can make sure your Bible is open to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you're newer to Christianity, or maybe you brought a Bible, but you brought it because you thought that's what you do when you come to church, but you don't really know what's in it or where to find stuff, please just use the table of contents. Um, This is not a performance. This is not a, will people notice if I don't know what I'm doing? We all have to learn at some point, right? So just be humble and use your table of contents or ask for help. There's nothing wrong with that. Because the most important words you will hear this morning are God's words. And that's why our Bibles are so important. Lord, would you bless this preaching of your word and give me grace. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. And Jesus looking at him Loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult, hard, not easy, not to be assumed. You know, I think in this country, by and large, we tend to process and think about wealth as a good thing. So we take comfort when we have it. We despair when we lose it. But you know, from the Bible's perspective, wealth, money, is just as much a danger as it is a blessing. You ever thought about that? It's just as much, for every bit it can be a blessing, just as much it can be a danger. And that's why Jesus spends, perhaps, so much time talking about money. Because it has the potential, friend, as he warned that young man, to destroy your soul. That's not a light thing. I mean, think about it. The the rich young ruler... He was ready to follow Jesus, apparently. At least so he thought he was. In nearly every way, save one. What was that? You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. It wasn't that he didn't love Jesus on some level. Right? Apparently, at a minimum, he respected the guy. The, the problem was that he just loved his money more. And when forced to choose, he clung to his wealth and he forfeited his soul. But pastor, don't worry about me. I'm not rich. I'm not Wall Street. I'm Main Street. I'm just trying to make ends meet and have a little left over for a rainy day. Do you know how much money it takes to maintain all four of our automobiles? Well, think about this. In 2018, the Washington Post reported that after adjusting for cost of living differences, that's important, A typical American still earns an income that is 10 times the income received by the typical person in the world. I don't share that to try to make any of you listening to me feel guilty for being rich. I'm not trying to do that. I am trying to make sure that when Jesus speaks directly to rich people, we have the humility to recognize he's talking to us. Our faces are on the page. But we tend to what? Just think, well, that's somebody else, Bill Gates, somewhere out there. But listen, even if you're not statistically wealthy, The danger remains. You don't get out 
of the danger of money and wealth simply by having none of it. What does Paul say in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And, and could I just say at the outset, as we're wading into this topic this morning, I think there's a reason why this tends to be an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people, including pastors. It's uncomfortable because it's personal right? Few things feel more mm -mm, no touchy, that's mine, than our money. So if the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, what's the alternative? I mean, is it, is it desiring to be poor? Is it abandoning material possessions altogether for, for a life of suffering in a monastery? Well, well, I think 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15 in particular, teaches us, please hear this, that the opposite of loving money isn't hating money. You know what the opposite of loving money is? Loving God with our money. Please hear that. The opposite of loving money isn't hating it, it's loving God with it. It's serving God with your money, following Jesus and what you do with your money. It means using all of it to love God and love your neighbor. I thought we were in a series of sermons called Sunday Matters. Where in the world are you going with this, Matthew? Well, we're in a series of sermons called Sunday Matters where we're looking at some of the common elements of our worship services that occur week after week on Sunday morning. And guess what one of those is? It's giving. I've been in this church for nearly 30 years, 25, 30 years. And I can't think of a single Sunday where we have not received an offering. Every week we receive an offering to support the gospel ministry God's doing in and through our local church. And if you've grown up in the church or you've just been in church a long time, I think it can be really easy for giving to become a mindless exercise. You know, it's like take the basket, pass the basket. What's next? Tell me what to do. Take the basket, pass the basket. You know, mindless. But I know for some of us, it's not mindless. It's downright uncomfortable. So maybe even in a church environment where it, it seemed like, all the church wanted to do was get their hands on your wallet as fast as possible. Or maybe you felt manipulated into giving. Or I would argue even worse, you were taught that if you would only give X amount, then God would really bless you. All that can make us uncomfortable. But, but I'm grateful, friends, no matter what your background is on that, no matter whether you're thrilled or a little nervous, I'm addressing this topic of giving today as part of our Sunday Matters series. God hasn't left us without guidance when it comes to what it looks like to worship him with our money and why that's such an important part of what it means to be a Christian. And I think few passages, you could go home and read this whole chapter today, go ahead and work your way through chapter nine. Eight and nine in 2 Corinthians are top of my list in terms of help for how to worship God with our money and our giving. So let me give you the context here because we're kind of just parachuting in. So in Acts 11, 
a prophet named Agabus from Jerusalem. He comes to Paul and his companions and he says, listen, the Lord impressed on my heart that there's going to be a great famine in the world. Which, by the way, if you've studied first century history, is precisely what happened in the region of Judea during the reign of the Emperor Claudius from AD 41 to 54. And it's toward the end of that time period that the Apostle Paul writes this letter that we call 1 Corinthians to the church he planted in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1, he gives them some explicit instructions. Listen, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. That collection is the same collection Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. It was a specific offering for a specific group of people, Christians in Judea around Jerusalem, at a specific point in time. But, please hear this, the authoritative words, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that the Lord inspired Paul to write, have no less a claim on our life today, friends. Why is that? Why why is this not just, oh, let's look at a historical situation. That's interesting. Because that's not the way the primary author of Scripture, the Lord Jesus, works in inspiring his word. In this, this chapter, he gives us biblical principles for giving in general and really teaches us what does it mean to worship God with the resources he's entrusted to us. So I'm going to mention nine of them. Yikes. But I'm not going to do them in one sermon. <laughs> and all everybody in King's Kids said, Amen. So here's what happened, okay? Last night, sometime after six o'clock, I realized this is a hopeless task. And I had been studying this chapter all week, eager to uh, bring out the, the riches and wisdom in here so that we can learn and benefit. And I just said, I give up. I give up. I cannot do this in one week. So I called Chris, fellow elder. He said, what are you, nine points? You're an idiot. So we're going to do this in two parts. And I will figure out later this week what in the world that does to upcoming sermon series. I don't care because I think this is really important. And here's why, okay? Giving is too critical a window into the spiritual condition of our soul. For us to just kind of, okay, that was uncomfortable. Moving on to sacraments. And giving is too important an element of how Jesus commands us to worship him for us to just fly through this. So, not only am I going to linger here for two weeks, I'm not remotely apologizing for doing that. (laughs) So let me say one more thing before we dive in. Okay? Consider this an introduction to a a two-week sermon. I'm not preaching this sermon as a word of correction. I'm really not, okay? And I hope you know I can say that with integrity because I don't hesitate to correct us where I think correction is needed. But I'm not bringing the sermon as a word of correction. You, you are on the whole king's way, an exceedingly generous church. You're crazy generous. And the reason Josh, one of our pastor in training, just amen from the front row is because I know I speak for all of our elders and deacons here. 
thank you for your generosity. You are exceedingly generous. I, I don't bring this as a word of correction. I love to brag, I think humbly, to other pastors about the Lord's grace on us in this area. We have prayed for financial provision for decades. The Lord has provided for this church again and again and again, which is why I've smiled at different points in our history when a bank looks at our financials and they say, this makes absolutely no sense, Williams. Why do I smile? Because gospel-driven generosity shouldn't make sense to the world. Right? What should it do? It should compel them to join us in following Jesus. That's what it should do. So I am preaching this sermon for three reasons. It's not correction. Well, then what are we after here? First, I don't want a year to pass where we don't let the word of God in some way renew our vision for worshiping God with our giving. Again, it's too important. Jesus says too much about it. For us just to let a year go by without hitting this topic. Second, I really do believe God's called us to more as a church than paying our bills. Why do I say that? Well, because we've learned how to trust the Lord together. If you've been here for 10 years especially, um, in a season of lack and need and struggle. And we're going to continue to trust the Lord together and not freak out together if we go back into another season of need and struggle on a financial front, but that is not where we're at right now. And I actually can hardly believe that I can say that, but it's true. For over a year now, every quarter, we have received more money than we've spent. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) And we're going to talk more about that at our next members meeting in February, but that means really our whole approach in some ways, not every way, but in some ways, to financial stewardship is changing because the conversation is shifting from how can we keep the lights on, which is a good and God-glorifying conversation, albeit a really hard one, to, Lord, what strategic ministry priorities within these walls and outside these walls are you calling us to get behind as a congregation? And I'm excited to go there, friends. I'm excited to go there and and enable men and women in our city and around the world to discover the joy of a growing relationship with God and to enable that through our giving, which is going to require more resources, not less. In other words, once you get out of a season and the Lord and his good providence lead you out of a season as a church where you're not struggling just to keep the lights on, it's not as if we just get to sit back on the bench right? He's got financial work for us to do and gospel ministry to get behind. So this topic's more important, not less. And and finally, last reason, I'm eager to address this topic because I know it's quite possible for a few faithful members who are exceedingly generous to cover up a lack of generosity on the part of others. Now, I don't have names in mind when I say that because I don't read any of our annual giving reports. I don't want to know, in most cases, how much any person is giving because I don't want to relate to you or pastor you according to how much you are able to give. But I do not want to presume that simply because we are in the black instead of in the red, 
that generosity is a non-issue. That would be pastorally unwise for all of us, starting with my own heart. God wants all of our money for all of our members to be used all the time to love God and love our neighbor. That's what worshiping him with our money is all about. You, you could argue that's the purpose of money that Paul brings out in, in different ways in each of these principles in 2 Corinthians 8. It's all about worshiping God with our money by using all of it to love God and love our neighbor. Some of us aren't used to thinking like that, right? We, we think, Lord, and we'll get more into this next Sunday. Lord, help me not to preach next Sunday's sermon. But some of us are used to thinking, well, I'll give God this, and then I've got a stamp called mine on the rest of it. Actually, Jesus bought all of you. Your whole wallet is his. You are, as it were, God's ATM. We'll talk more about that. But that's the big idea here, okay? Worshiping God with our money means using all of it to love God and love our neighbor. So each of these points points us in that direction from the first 15 verses. So with that introduction, let's jump into principle number one. We're going to hit three of them today. And you can pray for me because we're going to try to do six next Sunday. (laughs) Principle one. Look at verse one. God is the ultimate giver. God is the ultimate giver. So Paul opens in verse 1 by directing the Corinthians to the example of the churches in Macedonia. So that's churches in places like Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. What does he say? We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. We want you, Corinthian brothers and sisters, to know about the grace of God that has been given to the churches of Macedonia. What is Paul doing? He's not manipulating. He's not playing comparison games to reach capital campaign goals. Okay, he's reminding the Corinthians and all of us of a foundational principle. Okay, you ready for this? God gives first. God gives first. God is the ultimate giver. It was his grace... His unmerited favor. Have you ever wondered what grace is? Churches, your preachers throw that word around a lot. It's on the short list of use it all the time, don't know what it means words. It's God's unmerited favor. Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. God poured out grace, unmerited favor, on the churches in Macedonia that enabled them to excel in the grace of giving. So what does that tell us? He, his giving, initiated and compelled and sustained their own. Unless God gave, the Macedonians would not have given. Before we ever give to God, God gives to us. Has that changed? Absolutely not, right? Acts 17, verse 25. He himself, God, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Or John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting, Corinthians, as though you did not receive it? God's the ultimate giver. We can't ever give to him or others 
anything that he hasn't first given to us. Because it's all his. And the Macedonians stood out as an example of generosity. But notice it it wasn't because, look back at verse 1, that God gave to them in a way he hasn't given to us. Okay, so the point of verse 1 is not, hey Corinthians, join me in standing in awe of the Macedonians. That's not the point, okay? It's more like, hey, Corinthians, hey, Kingsway, remember that the grace of giving doesn't start with us. It starts with God, who's been exceedingly gracious to us. He's a God who gives, and we only give because he first gave to us. He gives us the power to earn wealth. He gives us the power to worship him with our wealth, And we're only passing along what we have received, which is why Paul doesn't say, I want you to know about the Macedonians. What does he say? I want you to know about the grace God has given to the Macedonians. He doesn't want them to ultimately look at the Macedonians. We're not going to find motivation to worship God with our wealth by looking at how poor people are in sub-Saharan Africa. Where are we going to find motivation to worship God with our wealth? By confronting and beholding the God who gives. He's the ultimate giver. And notice, it wasn't a grace given to isolated individuals or a select few in the congregation. It was given to the church as a whole. The grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And not just one church, but a whole group of churches. Which means what? Listen carefully. If you're a Christian, you never get to say, I don't think I have the grace of giving. I have other graces, but not giving. No, brother, brother, sister, if, if you are a recipient of the grace of God, and there is not one genuine follower of Jesus Christ who is not a recipient of the grace of God, then guess what? you have the grace of giving. If you have received grace from God, you have the grace of giving. That's his point. And that grace includes the power to give to God and others as he has first given to us. Because all that we are and all that we have comes from him. No exceptions. We we are, if you would, collectively debtors to God for the gift of life, for the gift of Christ, for all the blessings of the gospel, for, the, for even the ability to respond to all God has given by using our wealth to love God and love our neighbor. E- even that ability and power, that all comes from him. So at the outset of this, I really want to encourage you, especially those of you who, who struggle with this. You're like, oh, as soon as you raise this topic, Matthew, I just start feeling condemned. Because I'm just, oh, I can't do this. This is just, this car called giving is parked in a spot and the sign in front says, super hard for me. (laughs) If that's you, know this. God gives more grace. He gives grace. He doesn't just give Deuteronomy 8.18, right? The power to gain wealth. He gives what? 2 Corinthians 8.1, grace to give wealth. You don't need to be discouraged if you feel stuck because God gives more grace. He's the ultimate giver. We have to start there. 
you get that wrong, the whole thing collapses. Point one is the ultimate giver. Principle two, generosity is the fruit of surpassing joy. In other words, generosity doesn't spring up out of a vacuum. It doesn't just appear. It grows from something. There's a soil in which that plant called generosity blossoms, thrives. And absent that soil, that plant of generosity will never grow. What's that? Surpassing joy. Look at verse 2. How did this grace of God, unmerited favor, play out practically with the Macedonians? Verse 2, it's pretty stunning. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I loved math in high school, and so I tend to process scriptures whenever I can spot them as equations. And so I found myself thinking this week, severe test of affliction, extreme poverty, abundance of joy, equals what? Extreme affliction. You know, how does that equal a wealth of generosity? How's that equation work? Well, Consider this question, okay? In your life, let's just have kind of a timeout, take any be honest moment here, all right? What do severe tests of affliction tend to produce? If severe tests of affliction is the soil of your life, what kind of plant tends to grow out of that? Well, I think usual suspects, depression, isolation, grumbling, complaining. What if we take that soil of you know, severe affliction, and, and, and we infuse it with extreme poverty. Well, what, what then? <laughs> well, you need to know by extreme poverty, neither Paul nor I am I'm talking about things like, oh, oh no, I don't know how I'll pay my cell phone bill next month. I mean, if I'm not able to send 5,000 texts, I won't have any friends anymore. That's not extreme poverty. Okay, I'm, I'm talking, Paul's talking here in verse 2. Literally translated, it's the depth of poverty. He's talking about looking at your family in the morning and saying, guys, we don't have any food to eat today. That's what he's talking about. And an estimated 413 million people right now in sub-Saharan Africa are trying to survive on less than $1.90 a day. That's the kind of poverty Paul's talking about. Don't think I had trouble paying the medical bill for my excellent orthopedic care. Think, where's my food coming from? So severe affliction, check. Extreme poverty, check. But, but notice the Macedonian said something else in this equation on the front side of it. Abundance of joy. Not, not grim resignation, not the absence of complaining. I mean, any of those would be quite an accomplishment, right? But they went further. Joy. And not just joy, what? Abundance of joy. 
Where in the world did that come from? Psalm 4, verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face on us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strengthen of my heart and my portion forever. So the Macedonians had what? They had next to no material possessions. But you know what they had? They had Jesus. They had Jesus. They knew Jesus. They tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that in relationship with him, having him, knowing him, if you lose everything else, but you still know him and you have him and you see him, you say with the Apostle Paul, gain. Because Paul was willing to suffer the loss of all things to have Christ. And don't voice some kind of super spiritual shtick on that. It's not like, well, he said that because it was right, technically. No, okay? It's because it's true. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, are pleasures forevermore. And can I just say, friend, if you hear me say that, and part of you thinks, well, you look awfully joyful about Jesus, Matthew, but I have never once experienced that. Well, let me recommend the wisdom of this. It might be because you don't actually know Jesus. Maybe you've been coming to church a long time. But when you hear scriptures like in your presence there is fullness of joy, you feel like you are looking through a glass window on something you have never experienced. Friend, sometimes the most humble thing we can do in those situations is just tell somebody we trust that that's what we're feeling and have some honest conversation about do I really know Jesus, there can be all kinds of reasons where we feel that. But if you hear me say that and part of you goes, yeah, in theory, that's true. And I've never experienced that. Well, a conversation is in order. Remember that. Notice that knowing Jesus for the Macedonians didn't take away the pain of poverty. I'm I'm really grateful for the fact that, that there's nothing sanitized about Verse two, it's not like their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Paul grounds their joy here in grit, in real life. You've got real joy in the midst of real suffering from knowing a real savior. And what did it produce? Look back at verse two. It overflowed, the planet grew, is a wealth of generosity. So how does that work, right? We're back to the big equation. How does wealth of generosity wind up on this side of severe affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, wealth of generosity. Where do we get that? Well, well, it's supernatural, okay? But it's also simple. So think about this. When you have next to no money, for most of us, we've never experienced that, okay? Some of us have, but many of us have never. But, but when you have next to no money, extreme poverty, 
yet you still have abundant joy in Jesus. Well, what do you begin to realize? (laughs) It's not rocket science. At a deep level, you begin to realize that money isn't the source of real joy. Right? This is super simple. Jesus is. But check this out. Sometimes it's not until we're in extreme poverty that we actually see how true that is. And maybe what God is up to in your life right now with what feels like extreme poverty is showing you the beauty of Jesus. Maybe. Food for thought. But that's how it works, right? They realized money isn't the source of real joy. Notice how Paul says their extreme poverty overflowed in that wealth of generosity. It wasn't just like, well, despite all that nasty stuff, their joy produced generosity. No, their extreme poverty and their abundance of joy together produce generosity. And the first way that works is because extreme poverty, no money, but then you still have joy. Oh my goodness. Joy isn't found in money. They work together. They realized Jesus was their provider. Jesus is their deliverer. Jesus is their refuge, their security, their stability, their treasure, not a flush bank account or a balanced budget or a well-stocked pantry or an emergency fund or an IRA or a health savings account. Does, does that mean those things are bad? No. No. They can be a tremendous blessing. Is it tempting to make them our functional God and keep spending our entire life looking to financial security for the joy that only Jesus can give us? Yes. Yes. Is it easy to think Jesus is our joy? but immediately become anxious or panic when our financial situation is threatened, revealing that we were really loving money the whole time. Yes. Can wealth ultimately deliver on the abiding joy that it appears to promise? No. Can it grant you an unshakable, eternal gladness that no sorrow or suffering where shaky stock market can ever defeat or take away. No. But that eternal unshakable joy is precisely what we discover in Jesus and Jesus alone, friends. Why? Because you were made not to love money. You were made to love the Lord. Only he can satisfy your soul. So discovering surpassing joy in Jesus, it sets us free in two respects. Listen very carefully. It frees us from worshiping money. Because we realize, oh my goodness, I don't actually need that to have joy. Frees us from that and it frees us, this is just as important, to worship the Lord with our money. So we're freed from worshiping money, part one, and we're freed to then worship the Lord with our money. I want you to notice their abundant joy, extreme poverty, didn't just overflow in some sort of passive contentment. You know, what would that sound like? Man, it would sure be nice to have something to give, but at least they got Jesus. No, no abundance of joy, extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They couldn't help but take what little they had and devote it to loving the Lord and those he died to save. They couldn't help. It was a privilege. 
Think about this. Josh and Rachel got engaged yesterday, right? Congrats, you two. So exciting. But let me tell you something I've noticed about engaged couples. Okay, I'm not putting them on the spot. I haven't talked to them yet today, but just in general, being a pastor for over 10 years, I've just noticed something about engaged couples. I have yet to hear a guy who's bought one of those sink to the bottom of the sea rocks (laughs) come up to me and say, Matthew, I cannot believe I spent all of that money on a ring. Like, who does she think she is? Why on earth would I spend all this money on that woman? I've never once heard that. What, what do I hear? What do we hear? They come up to me and usually they're kind of secretive, like wait in line and they don't know whether to grin or kind of hide it. I bought the ring. Ah, you bought the ring? Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's what I feel like doing, but I can't because the girl's right there. Are you serious? Yeah. I've never paid more money for something in my entire life. And I, I don't know if that was responsible, but I loved doing it. I can't wait to give it to her. I've never, Matthew, I've never loved a woman like this before. Giving her a ring isn't a burden. It's a what? A joy. A joy. Why? Because he loves her. She brings him great joy. Listen, no sacrifice is too great to bless and nurture and protect and lavish on and give to the thing we love the most. The thing that brings us joy. We we love to spend money on what brings us joy. We will throw money at what brings us joy. We will go into debt to throw money at things that bring us joy and not complain a lick about it. And guys, the same principle holds true in our relationship with the Lord. That's the point. When Jesus is your surpassing joy, it's not hard. I mean, that's kind of an understatement, right? To overflow in a wealth of generosity toward him and those he died to save. It's a delight. It's a privilege. There's nothing we'd rather do. So think about this, okay? Again, foundational principles. If the first one was real clearly God is the giver, here's another way to state the second. Biblical generosity isn't the fruit of wealth. It's the fruit of surpassing joy. That's significant. It's not the fruit of wealth. It's the fruit of surpassing joy in Jesus, a joy that frees us from clutching our money and frees us to worship God and care for those who died to save with our money. It's the fruit of joy in Jesus. He's the pearl of great price, right? He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's the only one who can satisfy your soul and and in him is fullness of joy. That soil that the plant of generosity alone grows in is called surpassing joy in Jesus. And if you have a soil called surpassing joy in Jesus, it doesn't matter how much severe affliction and extreme poverty get infused into that mix, that plant will not stop growing. That's principle two. 
It's a good thing I didn't try to do all nine this Sunday. (laughs) Thank you for your wise counsel, Chris. Here's the last one. We'll just stop after this, okay? Principle three. The giving that pleases God is proportional and voluntary. Proportional and voluntary. Okay, we're going to look at verses three and four here. So as we wade into this, let's, let's have another kind of honesty moment. What do we tend to think? We tend to think that generosity is for, you know, wealthy people. Wealthy people. All the one percenters out there. I mean, I, I try to be a nice guy, but man, I, I don't have anything to give. I can hardly keep up with my medical bills. Well, we'll look at verse three. For they gave, what? According to their means. According to their means. So remember what I said earlier. Generosity isn't the fruit of wealth. It's the fruit of what? Financial excess. No. (laughs) Check if you're listening. It's the fruit of surpassing joy in Jesus. So, So the poor widow in Luke 21 had abundant joy in Jesus. So what did she do? She put in two copper coins. To which Jesus said, move over, lady. There's a really rich guy behind you with two bags of gold. Step right this way, sir. I'd like to make you a special offer. For those two bags of gold today and today alone, I will give you an engraved stone in the foundation of the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) Nonsense. Nonsense. Her giving melted Jesus' heart. She wound up in the Bible. (laughs) Why? Because from a proportional standpoint, she gave more than all those rich people because she had a soil called surpassing joy in Jesus. You know, there are two kinds of gifts. Thinking about this proportional principle that that consistently bring me to tears. I was thinking about that this week. Uh, The first are gifts I have received over the years as a pastor from church members with fixed income. Uh, Yeah, we're not going to go there. (laughs) That so moves me because I know the backstory. But the second category of gifts that also bring me to tears are gifts from my children. So when one of my boys takes literally half the money he owns and buys me a chocolate bar, do do you think I say as a dad, come on, son, why couldn't you have bought me a new sound bar? Chocolate bar. Follow his example and try again. No, no, it it melts my heart. It fills me with joy. Why? Because it's not because it's not about how that gift measures up against somebody else's gift. It's about what that gift represents of all that he had. It's the proportional character that pleases me as a dad and just leaves like you know. Are you okay, Dad? Yes, the chocolate bar. Our heavenly father's no different, okay? So friend, don't be discouraged by your inability to give much relative to the other people around you. And don't let that become an excuse that sin seizes to make you think, you know what, I'm not gonna play this game at all. Don't do that. As the Lord 
puts it in your heart, give according to your means, give beyond your means, not foolishly or blindly, but proportionally. Don't begrudge the providence that has seen fit to give you one talent and your friend 10. Don't do that. That the master in his perfect wisdom decides what he is going to entrust to each of us. We're responsible for being faithful with whatever he's given. And let me say this. When you give, take care that it is not transactional. Notice they gave, verse 3, of their own accord, begging us earnestly, verse 4, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That couldn't be more different than saying, all right, all right, God, fine. You want something? Here's your stinking 10%. Now you had better help me pay this rent, okay? We don't say that, but can't we think like that sometimes? 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. That compulsion includes a perceived sense that if I give to God, he owes me. Your compulsion doesn't have to be biblically true for it to feel like compulsion. Side note. For God loves a cheerful giver. They didn't have to be cajoled or pressured. They were begging earnestly for the privilege of giving. Why would we ever do that? Wrap up with this. Why, why, why would we ever beg for the privilege of giving? That's pretty crazy. Well, think about it. It's because giving to meet the spiritual and physical needs of people around us is a tremendous privilege. Tremendous privilege. I'll just give you some examples. When we give, and this is obviously personal for me, to release pastors into full-time ministry so they can spend their week studying God's word and do crazy things like bring nine-point sermons to feed the church, what happens? Well, we understand God's word in a deeper way, starting with this guy, so that together we can obey God's word in a deeper way. That brings what? Serious glory to God, serious good to his people. Okay, when we give to, to relieve the needs of the poor in our church and the surrounding community by releasing a staff deacon like Craig into full-time ministry or building a benevolence fund so we can meet material needs in Jesus' name, what happens? Well, Christians and non-Christians alike taste and see that the Lord is good. That he sees them, that he's aware of their situation and he knows what they need and he's using his body of the church to care for their needs because he's a good father. That's a privilege. Or, or when we give to build and pay off a facility like this, what happens? We establish a base of gospel ministry that'll serve not just our church today, but our church for generations to come. Okay, a place where we can train pastors, plant churches, devote resources to global missions that would otherwise be spent for decades on renting schools and movie theaters and shopping malls. Or when we give to support the work God's doing in and through our little denomination, what happens? Well, I get reports like this at the pastor's conference last fall that we're presently serving pastors and churches in 31 countries around the globe many of whom are eager to be adopted into sovereign grace because they share our vision and values, especially our commitment to gospel-centered, word-centered church life. I could go on. The point is, that stuff's a privilege. That's not a burden. That's not a duty. That's a joy. We get to do that. 
joy in Jesus and the magnification of his supremacy and glory. When that captures your heart, you will gladly take all of your money to love God and love our neighbor. That's what these principles in this chapter are pressing us toward. That's what we get to do. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the way you've reminded us today, not just through this sermon, but but even through the songs we sang earlier, that you want all of us. You want all of us. Our whole hearts, our whole minds, our whole wallets. You're not satisfied with a 10% handout. You're not begging on the cosmic street corner. You are our king. You are our Lord. You own it all. You give it all. You hold nothing back. And then you say, worship me with it. Love those I died to save with it. Father, I pray this Sunday and next as we linger on this topic of worshiping you with our giving, that you would lay down some really strong foundations in our heart, that we would not be a church that, that falls into the ditch of singing you are our treasure like we're about to on Sunday morning and then going home and setting you aside and putting money right back up there on the shelf and bowing down to it day after day after day. Father, we pray you would teach us. Teach us as a people. You know what you're doing when you spend so much time talking about this issue because it gets to our hearts. Teach us to love you and our neighbor with all of our money. To hold none of it back. We need your help. Thanks for doing that. Amen.